The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, Happy New Year, everyone. Off to 2016. I hope all of you have a happy, healthy, prosperous, and blessed new year as we move forward. And I have to tell you, I am so excited to begin 2016 with the guest I have today. She is known by the disability community for her great work, and she is so smart, and she is so committed to what we'll be talking about today. I'm so proud she's also on the board of AAPD, uh, but I've just known of her for a long time, and the great work she does, she is the Deputy Legal Director and Director of Programs for the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law. Welcome to the show, Jennifer Mathis. Thank you. I'm honored to be on. Well, it's great to have you. Um, And I know, I know something, I know something about you that I know all of our Pittsburghers will be excited to hear, and that is that you worked right here in Pittsburgh, um, and maybe after you tell everyone what you did here and if you had a Pramani sandwich, you then can tell us uh, how you first got involved in disability rights. Right, and I, I did, I have to confess, I had probably too many Primanti sandwiches, and um, <laughs> you can't get them in Hey, if you <laughs> don't know what we're talking about, this sandwich is so famous in Pittsburgh that when certain rock stars, people come to Pittsburgh, they want one of these Primanti sandwiches, although we've moved up. We've cleaned up because the big thing, one of the things about this little restaurant uh, was that it was known for being like a little dive with great food, but still have great food, but now it's uh, all cleaned up. Uh, it is unbelievable sandwich with probably 3,000 calories. Okay, every sandwich has coleslaw and french fries, no matter what you order, what roast beef, uh, meatball, I don't care what it is, it's this huge sandwich. That's why she said, like, one sandwich could be a whole day. Am I right, Jennifer? Yeah, and the key is that the, the French fries are in the sandwich, which yes, may be a little Yes, I'm sorry if I didn't point that out. You know what? I've got to tell you something else, Jennifer. I don't know why I thought this, but I thought people throughout the United States, when they had, like, a chicken or a steak salad at a restaurant, that it automatically came with fries. And I was speaking at MIT, and one of the professors there said to me, wow, there's that strange thing about Pittsburgh. You get a healthy salad, and it comes with French fries. And I said, you mean that isn't everywhere? No. (laughs) So we've got the, you know, you're going to think, wow, what's wrong with this city? 
salads with French fries, <laughs> sandwich with French fries. Um, I don't know what to tell you, but they're both good. So yeah, in the meantime, Jennifer, we're happy that you worked in Pittsburgh. Uh, how, how did you first get involved in this whole world of disability rights? Well, I guess the main way that I ended up involved in disability rights is that when I was in law school, I started law school in 1990, and uh, there was a young law professor named Chai Feldblum who had just uh, come to Georgetown at the time, and um, Chai, as you and many of your listeners know, was one of the lead lawyers uh, for the disability community in securing the passage of the ADA, and in 1990, the ADA just passed, and so all of this was brand new, and I uh, eagerly took Chai's classes, and I worked for Chai, actually, during law school, and so, you know, this was the beginning of the ADA, of the implementation, and, you know, it took a couple of years for it to become effective, for certain titles to become effective, and so all of this was really brand new when I was in law school, when I was... Uh, getting out of law school when I was working for Chai. We got calls every day. Ironically, some of those calls raised some of the issues that, frankly, we're still dealing with now. I remember one of the very first calls I got was, well, how does this ADA thing affect the Javits-Wagner-O'Day Act, and what about sheltered workshops? So, um, you know, it's very interesting how... You know, uh, even back then, we were, you know, people were thinking about these things, but, you know, nobody knew really sort of, uh, you know, when you have a brand new law of that magnitude and that breadth, um, you know, nobody sort of had a sense of really all of the different scenarios that might come up. And so we were doing all kinds of things. It was a very exciting time. And frankly, I guess that was really the beginning of my career in disability rights. And I have to say, I fell in love with the disability community. There were other things I was interested in doing too, migrant farm worker law and other stuff. But I just, once I was in, I was hooked, and I never looked back, and I never wanted to do anything else after that, and I have been a disability rights lawyer ever since. Lucky for all of us. And you know, uh, Jennifer, you mentioned High Feldblum. You know, she worked for High. High is like a uh, legend in the disability (laughs) community because she is so smart, so wonderful. Uh, What better person to learn from? That is really set you off on the right path. Now, uh, it was when, did you, when did you work, by the way, in Pittsburgh, and what were you doing here? So I actually began my legal career at the um, Pennsylvania Protection and Advocacy System, um, mm. and some of your listeners will know already that what the Protection and Advocacy Services are, systems are there, uh, federal, federally uh, funded and, and established network of uh, agencies across the country um, that are basically designated by each state. Um, they, they get money from Congress and um, they set up a protection and advocacy system which is to protect and advocate for the rights of people with disabilities, all kinds of disabilities, intellectual disabilities, psychiatric disabilities, physical disabilities um, of all sorts. And um, those PNAs, protection and advocacy systems, usually have a strong legal component. In Pennsylvania at the time, um, there was a separate 
legal subcontractor called the Disabilities Law Project. And so the PNA, or Protection and Advocacy System, arranged with the Disabilities Law Project that they brought the lawsuits, they brought all of the, did all of the legal work of the PNA. And that's where I worked, at the Disabilities Law Project. And um, so that's where I got my start. That's where I really kind of got my feet wet in disability rights law. And, you know, then later moved on to work at another PNA and then at the Bazelon Center. But um, that was sort of the beginning. And that, um, that was in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, I think, was one of the most exciting PNAs uh, for me to work for. They did a lot of great cutting-edge work, including a lot of deinstitutionalization work. And, you know, I just thought they were the bee's knees, and they still are. Wow. I mean, but you are not from Pittsburgh, right? I'm a New Yorker, actually. Um, You're a New so Yorker. Little, yeah. um, yes. And so Pittsburgh we're so was lucky an you were here. But, but they did such fabulous work, and really, they were doing they were doing community integration cases before most other places in the country. They, I mean, we did. Medicaid rights cases, we did curb cuts cases, we did transportation cases, we did around SEPTA, we did so many things um, that were so important and so great, but they really had, I think, a, just a good um, sense of sort of what are the priorities in the community. Um, you know, unlike some groups and some places, they were very, I think, well integrated with the different groups in the community, and they really connected with folks to really represent you know, people with disabilities in Pennsylvania, sort of what are your needs? What are the most important things that are bubbling to the surface? What are the, the you know, 10 things that we need to make a priority this year? They always were very organized and very careful about making sure that they were focusing on the right things and not just doing kind of haphazard work. You know, while we're talking, I want to go back to something you said earlier about you started, you know, questions, first questions on issues that, of course, we're still battling today. Where are we in this country on shelter work stops? Where are we? As well, far that's as closing a good question. Them? I'm not sure there's a clear answer. I mean, I think this is a time of transition, I guess, is probably the best way to describe it, um, I think there is now an increasing recognition that, um, you know, folks who are in sheltered workshops um, should generally be able to be supported in mainstream jobs, in, uh, you know, with supported employment services. Some may need more, some may need less. Um, you know, many experts have said, frankly, if you're in a sheltered workshop, you probably don't even need a lot of support. You know, you're doing a lot of the work already that you'd be doing in a, a you know, regular job. And sometimes they're doing exactly the same work as people in a regular job. But, um, you know, the ADA has uh, touched on this. And so there have been a couple of cases brought against states, including the Justice Department uh, being involved in those cases where, you know, the the... ADA argument was essentially, look, states are supporting, they're spending their money to support people in sheltered work who could be, in fact, supported um, in an integrated employment setting, getting services like supported employment. So, you know, you could be getting those services in an integrated, regular, normal work environment rather than in a segregated setting where people 
almost never end up leaving and moving on. And, you know, that's part of the integration mandate. You've got to do it unless it would fundamentally change your service system. And so um, there was a case in Oregon, and the Justice Department brought a case in Rhode Island, very interesting, both around people with intellectual disabilities who are primarily, I think, the folks who are... Uh, in sheltered workshops nowadays is folks with all kinds of disabilities in them, but I think more than anything else, intellectual disabilities. So um, I guess that's where we are. You know, they are not gone. Um, they're still there. They're shrinking. There's some recognition more and more that, you know, this is not what we should be uh, offering people if we want them to actually have, you know, the same kinds of lives as everybody else and the same kinds of employment opportunities. And this was a concept from the 1930s and, uh, you know, it may have been good then and, you know, it had good intentions, I think, of kind of getting people into the workforce, but in practice it really didn't turn out to do that. You know, I'm going to tell you just why this is on my mind. A friend of mine sent me this link today that he wanted me to see, so I go to it and it was a critique of some places in Minnesota and it showed this young man with an intellectual disability being paid $2 an hour to pick up trash at a uh, land landfill. And he was saying how he knew he could do so much more. And I'm watching this, I'm thinking, what, what is going on? Why aren't we, you know, why aren't these going? As a matter of fact, they also showed a woman with bipolar disorder and cognitive delay who was afraid because of assault at this one shelter workshop that's in a remote area. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. we obviously have a lot of work to do. That we do. In many areas, that and many others, yes. I mean, it's just, you know, the challenges of moving away from disability service systems that in almost every aspect really... I think assumed had low expectations for people with disabilities and assumed that people were incapable in so many ways. And, you know, there's there so many moving targets, but I feel like, you know, you, you can win some battles, you know, in some years and then other battles in other years, but there's so many different pieces, so many different ways in which people with disabilities have been devalued and underestimated that, you know, it takes time. Here we are you know, 25 years after the ADA and uh, we're still really just beginning to get at the core of some of these things. And some of them, like Olmstead, community integration, um, like where people work, I think some of these things go to really the heart of how we see people with disabilities. And so therefore, even though they may be really the core of the ADA, they're also sometimes some of the hardest things to address because you really have to change people's attitudes to get there, and that's that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. You know, um, I want to ask you, Jennifer, if you could tell everyone what the Bajalon Center for Mental Health Law is. Like, what is it? What do you do? Mm-hmm. Because I want to get right into this topic of stigma and mental health issues because I could not believe the interest that I have received about this particular show, and it is due to that issue I just uh, discussed. So first, could you tell everyone, what is Bazelon? 
Sure. So the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law actually started as uh, the Mental Health Law Project in 1972. It was sort of an ACLU spinoff, um, really a product of the mental health civil rights movement. Um, and so we've been around 44 years, and we do a lot of litigation, but we are not solely a litigation shop. We also do a lot of policy work. We do work in Congress. We do a lot of work with the administrative agencies. Uh, we do some education and training as well. Um, but, you know, a lot of litigation and policy kind of mix and feed off of each other. Um, and, uh, you know, our main focus, I would say, is really community integration. We played a leading role in the Olmstead case when it was in the Supreme Court, and kind of coordinating the strategy and really in litigating those types of cases before and after Olmstead reached the Supreme Court. Um, you know, we also have really many other areas of focus, employment, education. Increasingly, we're spending a lot of time on education, um, you know, getting kids with mental health needs the services they need so that they can be educated in, you know, their neighborhood schools and in a regular classroom and a regular school and not in segregated settings um, and inferior settings. Uh, we do voting rights. We do parental rights. We do, you know, health care, good mental health services, um, mental health may seem like a narrow field, but there's so many, so many issues um, involved. And so, you know, we, we do all of these things. I think really I would say that the bottom line of our work is trying to ensure that folks with psychiatric disabilities have the opportunities to have the same kinds of lives as everybody else and that we have the same expectations of them that we have of everybody else. Well, Jennifer, that's something I actually want to get into because it has been very, very upsetting to me, uh, the stigma, the fear, actually the way people are thinking about people with mental health issues in, because of these horrific massacres and shootings and gun violence. Um, it, it is really horrifying the things that people say to me, so much so that when I talked about your show, uh, this show on Twitter and different places, I stress that I really believe the disability community needs to take a stand uh, in this area, you know, for people and stand up for people with mental health issues. But, um, of course, I know you know what I am referring to. Um, so here's my first question. How much of this do you think is due to media coverage? And could you also express your opinion about all of this? Sure. So, and, you know, I share the concerns. I think this is a particularly ugly time um, for people with psychiatric labels, diagnoses. Um, And I haven't in my career seen the levels of public prejudice really sort of as high as they are now. And I I say prejudice instead of stigma. Sometimes people have raised a concern about the use of the term stigma. And people have said, look, you know, would you say that it's stigmatizing to be African-American? Doesn't that suggest that there's something wrong with, you know, what you are? And so, you know, isn't it really prejudice and not stigma? So, I, you know, it's an interesting issue, and that made me think about that word. And so I have, um, you know, generally tried to, to frame it as, as um, you know, prejudice, bias, which I, I think it certainly is. 
Um, but yeah, I think that in terms of the media, the media is a piece of it. It's certainly not, you know, all about the media. I think the media helps fuel these prejudices and you know it really I think with people with psychiatric diagnoses the biggest prejudice right now is around fear and the false association with violence it's interesting that you know this stereotype this false association continues year after year when you know the data is just not there. It just doesn't, um, it's not supported by the data. People with psychiatric disabilities aren't more violent than other people. Um, there's, you know, lots of studies that have been done, and, you know, I think the leading one was the MacArthur uh, Violence Risk Assessment Study in the 1990s, and, um, you know, that basically said people with psychiatric disabilities are no more violent than their neighbors. Um, there are, you know, co-occurring things that sometimes happen if people have a substance use issue that may cause elevated risk of violence, but having a psychiatric diagnosis by itself really does nothing to increase someone's level of violence. And in fact, there are studies about causation that if you have a psychiatric diagnosis when people have actually committed violence and they have a psychiatric diagnosis that often there isn't even causation between the psychiatric issue and the violence. And so, you know, it is interesting to me that, you know, in the face of kind of the facts that um, these these stereotypes continue and it's not about the facts. I mean, I think it's, it's clear that, you know, it's about sort of, uh, I think, having a convenient target. People with psychiatric disabilities have long been a pretty convenient target for um, sort of a scapegoat, um, you know, for, for things that uh, uh, happen that are not really of their making, gun violence, for example. Um, you know, blame it on people with psychiatric disabilities. I think that has happened from, you know, many different segments, actually, sometimes with conflicting interests. Um, but, you know, it, it is a distraction from the conversation of gun violence. I think for some folks, you know, who don't want to pursue other solutions to gun violence, focusing on, oh, we'll just, you know, deal with mental health reform or we'll just report people with psychiatric diagnoses to these gun databases, you know, that will solve the problem. I don't think it solves anything. I don't think it makes anybody any safer. Um, but, you know, it it really, I think, fulfills... Uh, a need that people have to point their finger someplace else and divert from other solutions. Um, and then, frankly, in part, I, I think that's not everybody's goal. For some folks, sometimes they feel like, well, they need to somehow do something. And I think, like, doing something is the bane of my existence. <laughs> you know, that it doesn't matter what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, there are folks that sort of feel like, well, we need to, quote, unquote, do something about gun violence. And so, you know, even though this is not the thing that we want to do and it's not a real solution, it's something. And I just, I don't think that helps anybody. It Again, it doesn't make anybody safer and it damages a group of people. I think that that's the piece that I think folks often don't understand is what message this conveys to the public at large and the people with psychiatric disabilities. It's like, we don't want you. We are scared of you. 
It is interesting that, you know, in this time when we are so focused on promoting employment of people with disabilities, on promoting community integration, and, you know, the Justice Department in this administration has done such great work enforcing the Olmstead decision for people with psychiatric disabilities and getting people into their own homes and apartments, and, you know, the administration's had a focus on getting people jobs. But what does it mean when you say with one hand, you know, these are your friends and neighbors, and they should be, and your coworkers, and you know you should have these folks in your workplace. But they might shoot you. You know, what is that? Mm-hmm. What kind of message does that send? Um, so I think that it's just it's incredibly damaging, um, really, to uh, you know both the public discourse about this, and that's what fuels the media. I mean, the media just you know pick up what uh, what other people are saying, and people are saying it for their own goals, and it becomes a a media discussion and it, you know, sort of uh, gets looped back on itself and then it gets picked up by other folks. But I think it's really a vicious circle between the media and, you know, all of the folks that are engaged in a public discourse about things like gun violence that, you know, people have various vested interests in, um, you know, either diverting the conversation from other solutions or in, in claiming that they're doing something. Yes, and... You know, you talked about employment, right, as all of, you know, most of my listeners know, but if you don't, you know, Section 503 of the Rehab Act, which is now uh, affirmative action for Americans with disabilities, as I said, with all federal contractors, one of the first steps was getting people to voluntarily self-disclose. And companies were amazed at how few people wanted to self-disclose. I can assure you that you do have employees with depression, bipolar disorder, uh, schizoid affect, uh, you know, borderline person, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. They would never disclose right now. Never. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why would you disclose when when the public dialogue is as vicious as it is and people are afraid? And and yet, this means you have very talented, productive workers. It's just you do not know they have a psychiatric disability. Um, And I've told different companies, well, people are not going to self-disclose if, as you said, they believe you're prejudiced. They are not. Mm -hmm. They will not. They live in fear right now. And even when I'm at a conference or a dinner meeting or something, if someone talks about a person that, you know, committed uh, a horrific crime in the United States, uh, they'll frequently say to me, well, well, they had a, they they had mental illness, right? Didn't they have mental illness? And uh, I mean, this is, this is, horrible for people with psychiatric disabilities. Right. First I mean, of I all, think that's no the, one, the thing. Mental no illness one, means did something bad. <laughs> yes. And no one, by the way, is even going to want to ask for an accommodation. That's what's right. so terrible about this, if they are employed, because once again, they're not going to tell anyone this. Um, and, and then when it is known, 
people aren't going to hire people. They're not going to reach out. They're not going to reach out, um, you know, as they do with other disability groups. You know, I'm living with epilepsy, and people will sometimes contact the Epilepsy Foundation. You know, do you have people that you want to refer? Although epilepsy is like right above uh, you know, psychiatric disabilities for how people view them and their ability to work and fear and et cetera. But there are other groups, you know, that they do call, whether it's uh, National Federation for the Blind, whatever the group is, NAD, uh, going mm-hmm. to RIT, NTID, which I'm on the NAD advisory group. But going there... I mean, you know, they have a career fair. Everyone goes up there. They want to hire someone uh, from the deaf community. That is not going to happen for people with mental health issues. It is not. And that is what is absolutely so terrible. Uh, here's another example. I've had companies come right out and tell me they do not want to hire veterans with uh, PTSD, I don't know what you can say about that because it sort of falls in the same uh, area, but do you have, actually on both of these issues, you know, mm-hmm. if you were right now talking to an employer, what would you say to them about either employing someone uh, with mental health issues or PTSD? What would you say? Sure. And, I, yeah, I guess that, you know, the most important thing is really, you're missing out on some of the most talented employees there are. Um, this is a significant part of the population. Um, I mean, there's, you know, sometimes people break it down different ways. If you look at people who identify as having a mental health issue, it's something like, you know, um, one in five people. It's a much smaller group if it's people with a diagnosis like uh, that's considered, quote, unquote, serious mental illness, um, schizophrenia by bipolar disorder, I, I don't remember, I think PTSD does fit in there, um, but, you know, regardless, I mean, there's a large group of people, um, and, you know, essentially if you're cutting out, um, you know, huge swath of, of potential people from, you know, ever being part of your workforce, you're missing out, and I think it's been just so interesting. Of course, if employers knew, if employers knew who was in their workforce already, if employers knew that they already had people with bipolar disorder and people with whatever diagnoses, you know, may frighten them, um, and that those are, you know, that some of their best workers in many cases, that, you know, these are people they love and they would never want to get rid of, um, you know, they might feel differently. I, I often think that it is actually a shame. It would be helpful if people felt free to come out about, you know, having a psychiatric diagnosis because it would, I think, bust some of those stigmas and some of those stereotypes. It would, you know, create less of this us and them mentality of, like, I don't know any of those people and they scare me. If they realize that, in fact, they're your friends and neighbors and your coworkers and all of that, then, you know, that would, I think, um, have a very beneficial impact. But as you said, I mean, right now, certainly... This is not a good time for people to feel comfortable disclosing, um, you know, with, with, uh, sort of fears and prejudices at the, uh, level as they are, as sort of pervasive as they are right now. Um, you know, that's a very challenging thing to ask people to do, expect people to do. Um, but I do think that, you know, ultimately, you know, what is going to have to happen is, is people are going to have to be more public and, you know, that will, 
I think, lead to better understanding that these are the same people as everybody else. There's nothing different about them. There's nothing scarier about them. There's nothing more violent about them. Um, and it's not us and them. Um, but I do think it's, you know, it, it, it is a shame that, um, you know, there's so many talented and wonderful people who, you know, basically are not working because of the diagnosis. Um, one of the most interesting things I saw was when I briefly worked at the EEOC, I went back to work for Chai Feldblum um, briefly when she was appointed as commissioner uh, at the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and um, I went over for a year to write the ADA amendments regulations. And, um you know, we did a hearing on employment of people with mental disabilities, both psychiatric disabilities and intellectual disabilities, and one of the people who testified was one of our interns, and she had a psychiatric disability, and um, she basically brought the house down. Uh, people didn't know. They didn't know her background, and they didn't really know her story, and, you know, she said, I was in and out of psychiatric institutions for a couple of years. I was told I would never live outside of a group home. I could never function independently. Now I'm a lawyer and, you know, I'm very proud of my career and I basically just needed to believe in myself and stop believing what these people told me and work really has been, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me and work has given me a sense of value and purpose and, you know, I love my job and I think every day about how lucky I am to be free. And, you know, people, you could hear a pin drop in that audience of hundreds of people, and people actually stood up and gave her a standing ovation afterwards. And I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. I mean, people just had no idea, and somehow it was shocking to people that they had somebody who has bipolar disorder among them who actually is a lawyer. <laughs> you know, it's not an earth-shattering revelation, but, you know, apparently in, in today's society it is. And so... Um, it's, you know, it really, I think, uh, does, and she's a phenomenal worker. She's, you know, she's, she's a great employee. She's done great things at the EEOC, um, and she's carrying on doing, she's now in the federal sector branch and doing great work uh, on disability rights issues. And so, you know, we need her there. And, I mean, the idea that, uh, you know, someone said, well, you know, you'll never live outside of a group home because of your diagnosis. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, but we need that talent and, you know, employers that don't recognize that, I think, are, are missing out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I agree with you. And as I know you know, there is certain legislation which they're trying to get through that I believe, I really believe could end up with people uh, going back to having institutions or more institutions um, and wouldn't that be terrible? Yeah, and that's been, I think, an interesting trend to watch, too. I, it's, it's peculiar because I think in the rest of, when people think about disabilities more generally, you know, where we're going with modern disability policy is very much about independence, self-determination, self-sufficiency, you know, we want people to be in their own homes. We want people to age in place. We want people to have jobs. And all of that is good. But when it comes to people with psychiatric diagnoses, somehow the conversation has shifted in the last couple of years. And it's all about we need more institutions. Uh, we need to force people to accept uh, treatment in the community. We need to... 
basically, you know, focus on um, coercive strategies because these people are out of it and they don't know what they're doing. And so, you know, we need to have court-ordered treatment for them and things like that. You know, despite evidence, I think that we have, you know, many other voluntary services that um, work far better and, um, you know, it, it's it's so inconsistent. It's 180 degrees from the direction that we're going with everything else in disability policy. And, you know, I, I don't understand. I, 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 it floored me to see last year articles, uh, actually an op-ed piece in the New York Times calling for mm-hmm. a return to the mm-hmm. asylums and uh, of an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, kind of lamenting that, you know, that we had sort of gotten rid of these asylums and that, you know, we should have better ones, not not abusive ones like we used to. But now they'll be all good. Now they'll be nice and clean, and so we should have, we should have them and put people in them for life. And I, I just, I find it um, unthinkable that this is now, you know, a serious part of public discourse, and I don't think it would be for kind of the rest of the disability world. Yes, and you know, once again, remember that terrible ball that's rolling? See, that all impacts this. The public view of, yes, we need those asylums again because these people are killing people. You know what I mean? Right. Um, That is the really scary part that people would endorse that or think that that is right. So, hey, listen, if you're listening to this show today, we really got to take a stand. We really got to do something. Um, You know, there's legislation going on right now. Uh, You could write in and express your opinion uh the one of them is the murphy law um you, you could write to who would you write to there jennifer yeah so i right that's the main one there's a murphy bill in the in the house education uh, and energy and commerce committee um and there's a companion bill in the senate um the one in the house is called the helping families in mental health crisis act um hr 2646 and I know certainly the Bazelon Center, the National Disability Rights Network, NICL, AAPD, many of the big disability groups have uh, opposed that legislation for the reasons that I mentioned. It really focuses very much on a return to institutionalization and, um, you know, forced treatment in the community and there's uh, little to no focus on kind of, you know, community services, supported housing, supported employment, employment services, and, you know, uh, peer support services, and mobile crisis teams, and all of that uh, stuff that has actually been proven to help people, that people want. Um, so, yeah, it, it is right now in the full committee, um, and so I think they'll be taking it up soon, and so if you actually write to your representative, um, if you are concerned about this, um, that would be helpful. Also, uh, the committee leadership, so that's um, Fred Upton uh, is the committee chair, and Frank Pallone of New Jersey is the uh, minority ranking uh, member of the committee, so Upton and Pallone. Uh, Upton is from Michigan, actually. So that's where I would write for the House bill. The Senate bill, more complicated, um, not as many draconian provisions, but I think it is still 
troubling to many of us, and it still has very much a focus on institutionalization. Almost all the money in both of these bills, if you cost out all the pieces, I think it's 96% of the money goes to psychiatric institutions. Um, it's it's pretty oh, when you, when you look at the numbers. And, and let me just <laughs> say, if you if you want more information about this, AA. PD.com, which I mentioned to you, Jennifer, and I are both on the board of, but AAPD.com, send an email, call them uh, to get more information so you can uh, follow up on this. I'm assuming at the Bazelon Center, you probably also have information on this. We do, we do, and people are welcome to call me. Might be the easiest thing. Um, also, there are a couple of websites that are just gathering a lot of good information. One is um, it's called the Campaign for Real Mental Health Change, and if you just Google that, um, I think you'll pull it up. And the other one is called Protect Pammy because one of the pieces of this Murphy bill in the House is that it would eliminate the protection and advocacy system, uh, most of the work that it does for people with mental health needs. Um, and that would be, I, I just think that's devastating. I, I, it's oh, a terrible solution. and it, it, that, it that would be absolutely devastating. Problem. Terrible. Okay, everyone. So, what is the what is that bill? What is the name of that bill again? HR what? Um, HR twenty six forty six. Twenty six forty six. Yeah, twenty six forty six. And um, the Protect Pammy uh, website. I think if you just Google Protect Pammy, Pammy is P A I M I. You will pull up all of those resources that's put together by the National Disability Rights Network. All right. How do you spell that again? Um, protect. What's the abbreviation? Pammy. Yeah. P A I M I. And the reason what that acronym stands for is actually the the statute that um, created the PME program was called the Protection and Advocacy for Individuals with Mental Illness Act. Um, so that's where PME comes from. Um, but so this is basically P A M I M I. P-A-I-M-I. Mm-hmm. P-A-I-M-I. You've got to get on it, folks. Got to get on it. Um, I was going to ask you more about that, but, you know, once again, get in touch. Jennifer, what's your email? Uh, it's Jennifer M, as in Mary, at Bazelon, B-A-Z-E-L-O-N dot O-R-G. Okay. Uh, and if you have any other questions, you can reach me, and I'll make sure that I reach uh, Jennifer. So, Jennifer, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which has been so exciting. However, we still have a lot more to do. So what do you hope you see over the next 25 years? Oh, gosh, there are so many things. I don't know where to start, but I guess, you know, the big things, I guess the sort of overarching issues is that, you know, I would like to see that in 25 years uh, people with disabilities will routinely have the opportunity to live in their own homes and apartments, that they will routinely have the ability, the, the opportunity to be in a workplace 
regular workplace uh, in, in the same numbers as, as people without disabilities. Um, that schools and libraries and stores and courthouses and healthcare settings and all of the buildings will be accessible to people with disabilities. But, and I think really probably the the keys to all of this is sort of attitudes. And I think of you know a big piece of this is you know, partly our service system attitudes and partly just public attitudes. Um, but, you know, I think our, one of our biggest problems is, I sh- sort of said this before, our, our systems of services that really serve people with disabilities, our mental health systems, our systems for people with intellectual disabilities, our social service systems, they really kind of function based on these outmoded presumptions that people with disabilities are not capable of many things that, you know, they're, they're not people who you'd expect to live on their own. They're not people you'd expect to have a job. They're not people you'd expect to have a family. They're not people you'd expect to vote. And, you know, we set up our service systems very much that way. We, you know, we offer people big congregate settings filled with other people with disabilities and say, you know, well, that's where you should live. Or we, you know, don't provide people with disabilities services if they need help to be a parent. We sort of assume well, you can't be a parent. Um, we assume that people with disabilities shouldn't be voting in many cases. We, you know, we, we make all of these assumptions and we tailor our service systems accordingly and, you know, people are forced to live their lives accordingly and I think that just affects everything. So many things flow from that and public attitudes about people with disabilities flow from that and the fact that people with disabilities aren't in jobs because, you know, we aren't offering them help uh, in many cases. Uh, You know, supported employment, I think, is a very interesting example. It's a service that has been really quite effective and has been around for quite some time and there's a big evidence base around it and yet if you look at public mental health systems, 1.7% of the people in public mental health systems are getting supported employment services. That's ridiculous. And, you know, that is ridiculous. 12% of people with a significant psychiatric disability are working full time. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And so that's all a function of kind of, you know, how our service systems treat people, what we offer people, what kind of housing we offer people, what we offer people for what, you know, what kinds of employment opportunities they might be able to get if they need help. Um, all of that really has an impact on so many aspects of people's lives and then that in turn really fuels public attitudes. And so, you know, when the public sees, well, you live in some place called such and such a manor, you know, and what is that? And do I want to hire somebody from there or like what's wrong with you? You know, and so I think that, you know, just the way that our service systems are set up really kind of sets in motion a whole chain of other public prejudices that affect so many aspects of people's lives. Yeah. Well, we got a lot to do. We really have a lot to do. Um, And we've we've got to keep that fire going and include young people with disabilities, you know, so we have another group of people coming up behind us. Well, Jennifer, I have to tell you, I can't tell you how excited I have been for this radio show. I am so excited to start off the year with you, and you have, you're a wonderful person, you've accomplished so many things, um, but if you had 
to think of what your greatest accomplishment has been, what would you say? You know, I I think it's a little hard to answer that question. I I would say it's either the role that I played in the Olmstead case uh, in the Supreme Court, which really you know had such an impact. I think uh, as it turned out, and it wasn't just me. Obviously, many many people were um, significantly involved in um, you know setting that up uh, so that it could happen uh, the way that it did. Um, but that really, I think, had an enormous impact going forward. Uh, it took a while for it to really start getting going, but now I think it, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see the fruits of that um, in terms of, you know, really shifting the whole way that service systems see community integration. And I feel like we're at the beginning. I wish we were at the end, but, um, you know, we're actually starting to really see a big change. And so, that is something that I think, you know, was a, an important thing. Um, I, the other thing that I can think of is really um, the role uh, in the ADA Amendments Act, um, being on the disability negotiating team, and we had this sort of small team from the disability community that spent months and months and months with, uh, negotiating with this team from the, the business community uh, to reach, you know, some sort of... Uh, consensus outline that then became the basis for the ADA Amendments Act, and as you know and your listeners know, we were so in need of some kind of fix there because so many people with disabilities were unable to use the ADA, and, you know, we've certainly had plenty of other ADA uh, enforcement problems since the ADA Amendments Act, but I feel like it's gotten just so much better in terms of, you know, people not being shut out from even being able to use the law at all. People might lose on the merits. They might lose uh, if a court says they're not qualified, whatever, but but they're not getting booted out of court on the ground that they don't have a disability when they have diabetes or epilepsy or psychiatric disability and all the things that Congress meant to cover and that we all thought were covered. So I think that has had a big impact. And But I have to say, maybe to me personally, you know, my greatest accomplishment was like my very first, um, you know, what some people call liberation, um, my first advocacy to get someone out of an institution. And it was, you know, something I did in my first year at the Disabilities Law Project in Pittsburgh. And it was just, you know, such a compelling experience. It was in the old days before there was even a process for people to get uh, a waiver slot, so-called, the Medicaid waiver slot. This was a guy with an intellectual disability who'd been institutionalized uh, since he was a child, and you know he was in his 40s, decades in an institution, and you know he didn't speak um, with words, and his his family sort of conveyed, you know, what what happened, how they knew that he he desperately wanted to be out of the institution, and said, you know, he. He comes over and he hugs us and he cries when we leave and he, you know, he's so miserable when he's here and he so wants to be out. And it was just, I think by the end of this little hearing that we did, um, you know, the hearing officer was crying, the parents were crying, I was crying and, you know, we won and the guy got to go home uh, and, you know, got a waiver services and, you know, it was all good. I mean, now I think there's many more processes set up for people to do that, but back then 
it was just states kind of assigned who they wanted to get into the waiver slots, and that was that. Um, and there wasn't even a process to get on a list or anything. So, you know, it was sort of a, a big deal for me. And I think, you know, it was, again, it was one of those things where once you see it, I just went home and I cried and I just thought, you know, this guy's life was so hard for so many years. This guy should never have had to do this, but his life is going to be better now. He's going to get what he wants. And I, I was sort of hooked. And, you know, I think for me that was just a turning point of kind of, I, you know, this is what I want to do. I mean, this is so important. This is what I want to do with my life. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a little individual never, case, but... <laughs> yeah, you can never put a price tag on that feeling. Right. Well, there is a question before we close the show here. Uh, you can tell you've been impacted so much by someone. So I wanted to ask you, who is your role model? Uh, well, I think that's my father um, who left us in 2009. But, um, you know, nobody famous. Uh, but my father, I think, was just a person of great integrity and... Um, somebody who came from a uh, hard time with a depression kid here of immigrant parents and, uh, you know, was a, spent his early days as a labor investigator in the wage and hour division investigating um, some really nasty, awful uh, labor violations in the 1940s, back in the bad old days and child labor violations and, um, you know, had some pretty hairy stories and, and stories of his first day on the job, his supervisor going around with him and actually getting the employer getting him drunk um, and parading him around for everyone to see so that they would know he wasn't going to do anything and so that wow. to send a message to the workers that they they had no protection here. And so, um, you know, my father just was very impacted by all of those things. And Well, um, well Jennifer, I will say he had a wonderful impact on you, wonderful. And I also want to thank you for being with us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be on. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, we end every show with a quote, so there can be no better quote today than that from President Bill Clinton, who said, mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of, but stigma and bias shame us all. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.